Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. In this podcast, I am joined by Professor Rosabelle Boswell, who is a professor of anthropology at Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Professor Boswell is a feminist. She is passionate about human diversity, social justice, and gender equality. She's conducted research on racism, heritage, tourism, and gender in Mauritius, Madagascar, Seychelles, Zanzibar, and South Africa. She's the author of several peer-reviewed articles and books, including recently a co-edited volume with Francis Nyamjo entitled Post-Colonial African Anthropologies, which is published by the Human Sciences Research Council Press in South Africa. She is currently involved in research with a UKRI-funded project entitled One Ocean Hub, which is led by Strathclyde University in Scotland, which explores its ocean sustainability and oceans governance. Professor Boswell, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much um, for inviting me. In this podcast, Professor Boswell will discuss with us her recent appointment at the South African Research Chair in Ocean Cultures and Heritage, an exciting newly created position which touches on many themes about the study of the Indian Ocean world and the social sciences and humanities, past and present. That's Professor Boswell, would you mind telling us what are the origins of this research chair? What are you hoping to achieve personally in this position, but also more widely, think about the scholarly field of research into ocean cultures and heritage? Thank, thank you very much, um, Philip, if I may call you Philip. Um, cool. Well, the, the research basically um, has quite deep roots. Um, it started way back um, in 2003, um, when I was um, working uh, as an ordinary um, professor of anthropology at Rhodes University, and I undertook um, a preliminary field research visit to Zanzibar. And it was there that I realized that there were so many potential linkages with the work that I had already started in Mauritius for the doctoral program. Um, and I felt it would be interesting um, to pursue a comparative you know, analysis of uh, African diaspora identity and ocean cultures in the two islands. And uh, it was from that uh, space that the uh, field research grew because subsequent to that, um, I also had the opportunity to visit the Seychelles and, uh, and I also had the opportunity to go to Madagascar to do further comparative comparative work. And that early work um, was, was funded um, by the Netherlands Foundation for the Advancement of Tropical Research. Um, and, um, and I suppose without them, I would not, would not have been able to, to conduct, um, you know, without their funding support, I would not have been able to conduct that research. But it yielded some very, very interesting um, sort of findings around um, what I would call intangible cultural heritage uh, or the non-tangible heritages of, of, of the world. So essentially your folk songs, uh, ritual practices, beliefs, uh, and especially gendered, gendered ideas about being in the world um, because my work in Zanzibar was predominantly uh, with women uh, and families. 
um, and that yielded very rich uh, data um, on you know on on the on the lives of women uh, in the and their potential and their contribution to the intangible cultural heritage of Tanzania. Um, subsequent to that, um, I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but subsequent to that, I conducted similar research in Seychelles. And in Seychelles, I was fortunate enough to be able to speak the lingua franca Creole, uh, being somebody from uh, 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 Mauritius uh, by birth. And so I was able to understand the language so that provided again, a sort of deeper understanding um, of uh, the intangible heritages of uh, the Seychelles, especially Mahe, the main island of, of the Seychelles. Um, and yeah, and I did similar similar work in in in, in Madagascar. Uh, that was shortly after there was a there was a coup. There was a military coup in in, in Madagascar in two thousand and nine. And I arrived there shortly uh, thereafter. I did two stints of field work there. Uh, the first part in the northern part of of Madagascar, an islands islands off the northeast coast, and then the second part of the research was done in in Antanana Reef uh, itself. Um, so yes, it was basically this kind of rich, you know, um, context that yielded, um, you know, some of the insights that came to be reflected um, in the Saatchi chair proposal or the research chair proposal. Um, in terms of what the chair seeks to achieve, um, very briefly, um, the purpose is to investigate, to report on, debate, and engage, as well as to advance knowledge regarding um, the intangible cultural heritages of people who live at, in the coastal areas of several African countries. Um, my previous work, as I've, I have already indicated, the previous work focused quite strictly or quite um, narrowly on the uh, sort of Indian Ocean Islands, Southwest Indian Ocean Islands. And um, the work that I'm proposing to do now is going to engage um, more sub, uh, sub-Saharan African uh, perspective because it's going to look at the situation in coastal communities in, in Namibia, um, in South Africa, uh, Mozambique, Kenya, and Tanzania. So again, we will be doing uh, you know, more in-depth work um, uh, on, on, on hopefully on Zanzibar and the, the East African littoral. The deeper purpose of this is not just to reveal, you know, um, knowledge that that perhaps has been um, marginalized or not fully understood or not fully documented. The aim is to also provide a sort of new new archive or an archive rather um, to um, advance a sort of new African epistemologies. Um, you may recall that about maybe 15 or so years ago in South Africa, we had this um, space or this movement called the African Renaissance Program. And the aim of it was to bring to the fore those knowledges that had been uh, set to the margins under uh, both slavery and colonial rule. And um, the, the, uh, uh, an important part, therefore, of the research chair project is to um, excavate, um, to excavate these knowledge forms which may ultimately you know, benefit um, the sub-Saharan population and, and the world at large, because it's knowledge that for a long time uh, has, has, been, has been kept under wraps or not, not fully well known. Um, the other part of the, the research is to also 
to document some of the socioeconomic inequalities emerging as a result of, you know, continued the, the imposition of neoliberal forces. So, for instance, um, we one of the things that that was noted in the sort of earlier fieldwork in Tanzania and, and in Madagascar was the extent to which um, new investors uh, were coming in and, uh, you know, seeing that some of these countries are less developed countries or quite poor countries were bringing in forms of infrastructural development, port development and so on that was not necessarily uh, beneficial to local communities. And so part of this work is to also engage with these potentially um, problematic development initiatives and to find ways of empowering local communities to ensure that their knowledge is, is more widely shared. In, in broader policy terms, um, sort of beyond, beyond field work and beyond uh, local community empowerment and support, um, the research also seeks to give meaning to and to deepen um, UNESCO's uh, bid to more fully document the intangible cultural heritages of the world. At the moment, we have more than 900 World Heritage Sites listed um, on the WHL and more money is actually invested and more time and energy is given by national governments to the conservation and the management of tangible heritages, your sites, your monuments, monuments, artifacts and so on. Um, but if we consider what is being done for the oral and intangible cultural heritages, especially of, of African heritage, we see that there isn't much uh, that is, is, is basically noted um, you know, on, on the World Heritage List. And so uh, an, an important contribution you know, of this project will be to hopefully again excavate or unearth those intangible heritages that are potentially of world heritage value um, so that they may uh, potentially be nominated and inscribed on the list of oral and intangible cultural heritages. A further aim, uh, broader aim of the project is to engage with what the One Ocean Hub calls uh, transformative oceans governance. So th that's a really important aspect, you know, of the Saatchi Chair project because presently, um, we have a situation where many coastal communities, especially those uh, people who belong to indigenous or autochthonous groups that are in fact, um, again, very much left on the margins of decision-making processes or the, the, there is insufficient um, uh, legal framework or laws uh, to support um, their participation um, in oceans management and in oceans governance. So an important aspect of the project is to foreground the importance of, of community participation in the ocean's governance process, to advance indigenous ways or autochthonous ways of knowing and being with the sea. So we have, we have quite, I think at the moment, fairly dominant sort of Western paradigms and ways of framing the sea and engaging the sea and managing the sea and legislating the sea. Um, and an important part of this project would be to foreground alternative ways of seeing and being with the ocean um, so that we can also have different valuations of the ocean because the current valuation that we're seeing is one that is focused quite strongly on the sort of the economic contributions that the ocean can make uh, to the global economy. 
and there are not many social science cultural perspectives on what contributions the, the ocean can make um, to humanity other than the economic. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for that, for that summary, um, Professor Boswell. This sounds like an absolutely fascinating project, a fascinating position, uh, and one which I'm really excited to see um, develop further. One of the things that's really exciting about it is clearly that I think it's, it's quite novel from a social sciences and humanities perspective. But of course, at the same time, we can say that natural scientists um, have been engaging with oceans and oceanic spaces for, for decades. I wonder, what, what, to what do you attribute the relative slowness of social sciences and humanities to kind of engage with the ocean in the, in the way that you're doing now? Yeah. Uh, and in what ways are you interacting with, I suppose, natural science perspectives? Yeah, Thank, thanks for that. Um, I think, I mean, one, one could speculate as to why, you know, um, why social scientists have, haven't really engaged sort of more deeply in this field up to this point. Um, I think part of it has to do with the sort of global valuation of social science and humanities knowledge. That the, the idea that uh, what social scientists and in particular anthropologists have to contribute um, is very much um, limited to the sort of field context, um, to the um, this research site in which they do their field research. Not, not understanding, of course, that the discipline of anthropology has you know, especially globally, that it has wider implica uh, wider applications. Um, in the context of South Africa, especially, um, if we look at the development of the, of the discipline of, of, of anthropology, the sort of at least national perception has been that we tend to produce a knowledge that is, is, is locally um, embedded within a particular field site, it's time bound, and it may not have, you know, wider meaning or potential application beyond that space. I do also feel that um, funding, funding patterns ha have also impacted the collaboration process. So until very recently, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, until very recently, there, there was not much in the way of focus on the transdisciplinary uh, research potential. Um, and, you know, um, the emphasis was on, you know, achieving outcomes from pure natural science uh, marine spatial planning, for example, or, um, you know, bioecological um, assessments, and, and not, not taking into account the importance, perhaps, of local communities and their perspectives and their experiences and their potential contributions to debates around marine spatial planning. And this was especially, I think, problematic in a place like South Africa, given, given its history. Uh, of you know the the sort of both slavery uh, uh, slavery colonialism and then of course apartheid systems that excluded uh, local communities um, in order for the uh, unequal political system to to flourish and so it's quite I think there has there are significant changes that have occurred since 1994 with the advent of democracy especially in South Africa and the recognition that. Uh, community participation is key, that indigenous knowledge systems are important, that we need to take these into account when uh, implementing any form of development uh, project, whether it's at the coast or further inland. I also feel that to go back to the question of why social scientists have not more directly engaged um, natural scientists, I, I also think that there was a, 
sort of a disciplinary sort of, you know, divide as well and a, a sort of mistrust of, of natural scientists, especially in South Africa, the idea that, you know, the social scientists were more in tune with the political climate of the country, that they were more aligned to achieving, um, you know, sort of democratic outcomes, whereas the scientists were in it really just for the science, which of course, you know, I mean, there's a, is, is, a, is a legitimate thing for them to do, but at the same time, the potential there for it to actually ignore um, the inequalities and exclusions which were continuing in the South African context. Now, I don't know if you asked me the question of why have I gone the route of, of seeking to work more closely with natural scientists or not? Uh, did you ask me that? Sorry, I'm... I, I don't think I did directly, but by all means, it's an interesting question to answer. So if you have some insights, gladly. Yeah, so, so in, in my previous uh, work in um, education management as a, as a dean, I worked with a number of different colleagues, you know, in, in different disciplines. And there I saw, you know, the potential for actually working across these different boundaries. So like most academics, I had my own sort of disciplinary home. Um, and when I was a full-time professor, that was, you know, I was embedded in that particular space. And I didn't really encounter or see the possibility um, for transdisciplinary work. Um, but it became very clear, you know, as, you know, I did more and more research, especially in the India, Indian Ocean region, it became very clear that the issues of environment and community um, and the issues of, you know, culture and tourism, uh, you know, that, that these are interlinked um, and to a certain extent interdependent. And that if I really wanted to understand you know, community participation in a coastal uh, setting, I, I needed to engage with um, marine spatial planners and I needed to engage with, with other natural scientists working in, in, in this field. It was not something that I could ignore. And, and I've learned a great deal actually that, that you know, that the, the possibilities for collaboration are there um, and that, you know, we as social scientists also have to be quite confident about the contributions that we bring from our respective disciplines, as well as to be confident also about the, the methodologies that we, you know, um, we have been uh, educated in, yeah. Wonderful. I just want to pick up one of the threads, threads you mentioned about um, South Africa uh, as a nation state and the changes that have occurred since 1994 and how your, your work is kind of situated within that. Of course, since the, I suppose the mineral revolution in the late 19th century, South Africa's centres have been um, traditionally been viewed economically and politically, I suppose, present-day Gauteng, uh, in, in the, basically in the interior, the terrestrial interior of South Africa. Um, I was wondering, how does your work, I suppose, reorient um, this thinking about Africa's um, past and present, and particularly its place in the modern world, by taking, I suppose, this oceanic perspective? Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I think that in one line, it seeks to present Africa as a noble and meaningful contributor to world knowledge forms. I think that is, the, that is, the, that is what I would say. Um, because for far too long, you know, I think that 
the knowledges held here, which are diversely influenced, um, you know, whether it, people from the Middle East that, you know, came to sort of northern parts of Africa, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the archaeology of Africa is actually showing that we have these diverse cultural origins. And we, you know, for the last, you know, 500 years, really, we haven't seized the opportunity. We have not seized that opportunity to make the knowledges of Africa known more widely and to be respected more widely. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, then in that case, I've got a kind of a question about um, the methodologies and I'm actually going to ask you questions about your research more broadly. In preparing for this podcast, I really, really enjoyed um, reading um, your articles on voicecapes in the study of um, Sega as voice work uh, and also about, um, about stories of sensuousness in the Indian Ocean Islands. And I wonder if you could talk about the methodologies of acquiring these intangible knowledges um, in yeah. these oceanic spaces. Um, and the ones that you've employed innovatively um, and how this can contribute to an understanding of African knowledges uh, in oceanic spaces. Yeah. I recently um, read uh, this book uh, by an author called, um, I think his name is Francois Laplantine. He, he wrote this book uh, on the senses and the importance of the senses to research and he employed the term participant sensation. And it struck me that this was something that, um, you know, that I had been doing, you know, with, without sort of not consciously knowing or, you know, realizing that this is, I wasn't really doing participant observation in the sort of classic sense of the term, as we, we say in anthropology, where you go out and you spend a great deal of time in the local community and you observe, so you, maintain uh, a measure of, of, of objectivity through your own culturally influenced lenses. You, you observe what is going on in the community and then you seek to document that as faithfully as you can. And uh, later on, you sort of scrutinize those observations to ensure that you haven't misrepresented the community or that you, your biases have not necessarily crept in. But one of the things that I... Uh, eventually sort of that eventually came to me in the course of, of field research in the Indian Ocean region over many years was that as a researcher it's very difficult to first of all remain completely objective and it's and it's not because of one's subjectivity it's not because of necessarily of because of where we come from uh, and what cultural influences have, uh, you know, impacted on us as individuals growing up in a particular cultural milieu. It's not that. It's because we are profoundly sensory beings. Um, and in the days gone by, you know, um, when people spoke about culture shock, um, culture shock wasn't always or necessarily about a sort of cognitive, like, you know, sort of cognitively detached process that is happening to the individual, but rather a, a sort of sensory uh, dislocation um, that was happening to them because they were no longer in an environment where um, the sensorium, the sensorium, the se sensory environment uh, was one that they had grown to sort of be accustomed to and were comfortable with. And 
especially as a as a as a gendered uh, as a woman doing field research in 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 mostly patriarchal societies the experience of participant sensation was even you know heightened to a greater extent because i was no longer in a space where um i was surrounded potentially by um family members that that could ostensibly protect me, you know, this, this idea that as a woman, you're vulnerable and you need to be protected all the time. Um, and I had to, you know, physically and in sensory terms, I had to come to grips literally with, you know, being in a space where I am, you know, I'm, I'm completely open and, 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 and vulnerable to the multiple sensory, um, you know, experiences that are happening in a space. And so, um, just to give you an, an example, um, I mean, in, in the, the paper on sensual stories, I, I talk about how the participants or the interviewees, you know, in the research process, how they literally held on to me and how their words created particular feelings um, or sensory experiences. And that those then became important ways for me to understand uh, not only my personal experiences, but some of the emotions and needs and imperatives of the people living, you know, in, in those areas. Um, that was especially the case uh, in of Indian Ocean um, field research, especially in, in um, the work that I did in, uh, in the Seychelles, uh, where um, I tell this very, you know, important story about how you know the weight of the past is still manifesting in the in this imagery of the people carrying the breadfruit up and down you know this this mountain the heaviness and the drudgery of eating only breadfruit and having only breadfruit um very difficult to convey the the multiplicity of feelings engendered in that space um but at the same time, it's, it, it was powerful because I was no longer just telling the story. I was no longer just this observer looking through the church window at the rain coming down and saying that, you know, I see people going up and down. No, this, this image was, you know, it was resplendent with this idea of the, the weight of the past, um, which is a, a term that, um, yeah, Michael Lambeck, you know, used quite a lot in his, in his work. So, but of course, it's not just the image; it's the, it's the experience as well um, that you're that you're trying to have recognised here. And I wondered, could you speak to the challenges um, of getting these kinds of forms of heritage, this intangible heritage, recognised more widely as a form of heritage, with, for example, um, UNESCO? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So, for example, um, the the. The paper, a paper that I wrote in 2008 on um, sense of identity, on the scent heritage of, of Zanzibar, and just how, um, how you know, fascinating that was because it wasn't tangible. It, it had an element of tangibility and it had an, a strong element of intangibility in terms of the beliefs and so on that were engendered as a result of particular scents that were used, particular products that produced uh, certain emotional and psychological states. The, the challenge is that um, the nominations process uh, with 
UNESCO. It, it, it's, it's an important and it's a reasonable process, but I, I imagine that it could be a better process because at the moment there's strong reliance uh, on provincial and national UNESCO um, sort of entities um, to assist national government in the identification, in the nomination, and finally in sort of the discussions around the inscription of these heritages on the World Heritage Site. There's a very strong hierarchical structure that is not necessarily strongly linked to local communities. So if you have local um, community leaders or um, individuals, for example, that may wish to share um, a culture that could be of both national and world significance, they would have to go through this almost, you know, regime process of getting that heritage um, documented and so on and so forth. The other challenge, of course, is whether or not they would want to have it done that way. So um, a big problem with intangible heritage is that if you, if one seeks to have it conserved on the list of oral and, and intangible cultural heritage, the question is, is it then still meaningful to local, to the local community? Has that particular cultural product, product has it been ossified or is it, you know, will it be ossified by the, 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 the process of, of, of nomination or, or the version of that intangible heritage which has been captured? Is it the version or are there multiple versions? Because in essence, intangible heritage is, is quite uh, dynamic. Um, you know, stories, for example, that are passed on from one generation to the next. Sometimes they're adapted to reflect local circumstances and imperatives, um, even though the style of, of the storytelling and its, and its key elements remain, remain the same. So there are big questions around whether, you know, one can or should conserve oral intangible heritages. How do we maintain their dynamic nature? And then there's the problem of the, you know, the institutional structure, the nominations and inscription process. And then also the idea that you, you the, the problem or the challenge of nominating uh, heritages that sit across uh, regional boundaries or cultures. So in the, in, in, in the sense of um, the scent heritage, for instance, is something that, you know, it's along the East African coast, we, we also see it. Um, in the you know communities that that came to Tanzania to Zanzibar from Oman, for example, though the Saint heritage is still is very powerful there. It's a very important part of religious belief. Yeah, wonderful. That is uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, if you'll permit me, I will just finish with one final question on a related topic, but uh, somewhat distinct as well. Um, and this so comes back to some of our focuses at the Indian Ocean World Centre. And I wondered how the urgency of climate change and to the um, rising global seawaters, does this in any way influence the urgency of your position? Uh, or in other words, how does the research chair in oceanic cultures and heritage uh, interact with concerns about global warming uh, and rising seawaters? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a powerful question. I think when when I when I reflect on this issue, I, what comes to mind for me is the fact that it's not just a question of saying to people that they need to move, you know, from areas that are, you know, um, within the sort of high, you know, within the distance of the sort of high water mark that they uh, they need to move from floodplains or they need to leave the island of Kiribati because it's it's going down. You know, it's 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 not that because people have very deep roots and sense of belonging to particular areas. Those histories have, you know, been have evolved over thousands of years to force people to leave, you know, certain areas um, is not, that's not the solution. Um, but at the same time, we have the problem of um, rapid climate change and rapid sea level rise. So it's, it's clear that, I mean, that, that much more has to be done, you know, at the sort of, uh, at, the, at the global level. Um, just a couple of days ago, uh, we were in discussions with colleagues um, from the One Ocean Hub around uh, COP26 or COP26, which is the, the global climate change uh, conference. And, um, you know, looking at some of the, you know, agreements, the international agreements that had been struck, you know, in years gone by, you know, reporting, for example, on carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. But a big question um, that we have not really yet answered is what are we going to do with the 600 million or so people that currently live at the coast? I mean, where are these people going to go? Um, and it's it, even in terms of the, the sheer logistics of, you know, of steadily moving people inland, uh, and what the impact of this en masse inland migration could potentially have, you know, on fast dwindling resources of, you know, fresh water and food and so on. These are, I think, some of the issues that really need to be discussed. I mean, I was astonished when I learned that, that there are, in fact, like, you know, nearly a, a billion people like living on the world's coastlines. It's not, we're not just even talking about people who classify themselves as indigenous or autochthonous people or people who have a, you know, a, um, a culturally, you know, distinctive, you know, um, social structure that needs to be preserved, you know, for, for posterity. It's not that it's the people that are living, you know, at the coast whose livelihoods are threatened and whose, whose, um, yeah, whose history and, and culture are actually threatened too. There are really very tough decisions to, to be made. Um, and I think that it's, it really is going to be very difficult because I'm not sure that we actually have enough time in which to, um, to make such uh, important decisions or whether the important decisions that we make are actually going to have that much uh, effect. There are, it's, it's a bit pessimistic, I know, but um, barring, uh, you know, some major technological sort of innovation that, that helps us to manage this, this looming crisis, I'm not sure um, how, you know, a, um, a, a global climate change conference is, is going to stop the tide. 
Uh, thank you very much, Professor Bozzo. I'm very sorry to have led you down a somber route for the final question, um, but mm. I think you're I think you're right to be pessimistic. So just before you go, Rose, um, I'd like to know a bit more about your current projects. Um, I've heard through the grapevine something about your project, Blue Heritages, Ocean Cultures and Histories, and I'd just like you to speak to that um, maybe a tiny bit before we let you go. Thank you very much. Um, it's a book called um, Blue Heritages, uh, Ocean Cultures and Histories in a, in a Global Perspective, together with colleagues from uh, the Max Planck Institute in Germany. It's David O'Kane, um, Jeremy Hill from um, University of South Pacific, and John Ansa from Cape Coast, Ghana. And it is, has been um, accepted for publication by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, it's an edited book, so we'll be looking at submissions across the range uh, of some of the issues that we've been talking about today, the history of, the, of, of uh, ocean cultures uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and Indian Ocean world, uh, issues of uh, ocean sustainability and oceans governance. So if there are people who are interested in submitting a potential chapter, they should get in touch with me. Wow, thank you so much, Rose. And to all of our listeners, you can find Rose's information and more about Rose's research in the bio of this podcast, either on our Appraising Risk website or on our Spotify. Uh, so back to you, not just to conclude. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Bozo. But uh, again, thank you very much for discussing your research. It's a very exciting position. I can't wait to hear more about it as um, it becomes more established. Um, thank you also to Rene Mandeville, who's been working in the background, making sure that this uh, podcast runs without a hitch. Uh, and thank you again. Thank you also to the listeners for um, downloading. Um, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding, um, and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.